Bienvenidos and welcome to Puentes, the podcast dedicated to exploring the diverse and dynamic world of primary healthcare in the land of enchantment. I'm Mario Lozal. On today's episode, we're honored to introduce a remarkable individual in the field of family medicine, Dr. Ashton Duncan. Dr. Duncan currently shines as the co-lead resident at the University of New Mexico Santa Fe Family Medicine Residency Program, where his dedication to the practice of family medicine has made a significant impact. Recently, Dr. Duncan's outstanding contributions to the field were recognized with the prestigious AAFP Award for Excellence in Graduate Medical Education, a testament to his commitment to advancing medical education and patient care. But the journey doesn't end here for Dr. Duncan. After graduation, he's poised to take on a new and exciting role as a core faculty member at the Médicos del Centro Family Medicine Residency Program in Española, New Mexico. Today's interview is hosted by Dr. Mac Bowen, the program director of the UNM Santa Fe Family Medicine Residency Program. With his profound experience and knowledge, Dr. Bowen is the perfect person to delve into Dr. Duncan's journey, accomplishments, and future endeavors in family medicine. So let's join Dr. Bowen and Dr. Duncan for what promises to be an enlightening and engaging conversation. This is Puentes. Thank you so much, Mario, and uh, welcome, Dr. Duncan, to, to Puentes. Um, absolutely a pleasure to have you featured. Um, you've been an incredible force within our residency program, and uh, so excited that uh, you are going to continue your work in northern New Mexico. We're so lucky to have you. Um, for those of you who don't know, you, do you want to add to your a little bit about your background and a little bit about your journey to New Mexico? For sure. Well, Again, hello everyone. I'm Ashton Duncan, one of the third year residents within our program. And just a beautiful introduction too for Mario on that. I um yeah, just to add a little bit of information. So I am originally from Oklahoma, uh, grew up there for most of my life, uh, did spend several years traveling across the world uh with my father in the Air Force. Um, but uh, you know, Oklahoma really was where I got started on a lot of you know a lot of this work very early on. Um, went to college there, did my public health training, medical school, all that. Um, I think uh, you know, really growing up in Oklahoma was a really important um, important part of uh, informing the kind of work I do today because there are a lot of parallels between the issues in Oklahoma and, and the issues that we face here in New Mexico. Um, what really brought us out though, you know, I, I was looking for a place to set up shop where my wife and I could both thrive. She's an artist. I wanted to really nurture her career as much as I wanted to nurture my own. And in the, you know, in the process for me, um, it, it's been amazing. And so I'm, I'm really excited to talk more about this and some of the plans I have for the future. That's great. Can you speak a little bit more about uh, what attracted you to training in, in, uh, Northern New Mexico? In terms of some of those specifics that uh, hit hit the boxes for both you and your wife, right? So I, I mentioned for my wife, you know, it, it, it was kind of just like a glove that fit extremely well for her. You know, it was like getting into the the Santa Fe arts community was a huge step for her, especially coming from a place like Tulsa, uh, Oklahoma, where you know the arts community is you know it, it's bustling, but it's not anything like Santa Fe and. You know, it, it was the unique opportunity for her specifically to work in a place that wasn't overly large to like looking, you know, looking at Los Angeles, looking at New York. I mean, amazing places for art as well, but also just places that are a little challenging to live in and very different from where we came from. Now, for me, I went to um, the OUTU School of Community Medicine and kind of right out of the gate, a lot of what we 
really focused on um, when I was a student was about you, you know, using community resources, being in tune with the community to really address health issues. Um, now, if we look at what we do up here, um, the Santa Fe program and thinking about our work in northern New Mexico, so, so much of that going on um, that, you know, it, it, I, you know, just the, you know, the huge issues around access and the fact that there were plenty of patients I would see for the first time that would tell me like, I haven't been seen in three, four, five, ten years. Like it, it was, uh, you know, it was really striking right out of the gate, mm-hmm. but also really made me very comfortable in the sense of that, wait, this is reminding me of what it was like to be a student and to use those skills I had already been developing um, during my time in Tulsa. So for me, you know, Northern New Mexico really became a, a really great opportunity to practice those skills, expand them. And I mean, I, I have zero regrets because it has been amazing in terms of being able to grow in this area and learn so much about the people around here and the the impact that healthcare professionals can make in this part of the state. Yeah. That really resonates with me and my experience of getting uh, um, more invested in the community here. We we really have this on one hand so um, underserved in the healthcare sector, and um, however, layered on that is this uh, large philanthropy and and um, a lot of organizations active in the sphere, and and a lot of. Uh, to to stay here and and to practice here. So when um, when you consider you know you have the ability to um, seek employment really in a lot of a lot of different areas. Um, what was it about the Medical Style Central program in Española that um, really piqued your interest and attracted you to uh, sign on there? You know, it, it's uh, it's so funny too because i i think back through, through this journey to the you know to this point i'm at right now with with the program and i remembered hearing about um the el central program way you know way back i think it was actually during um i think it was one i think it was the summer the nma afp uh, summer conference that we um that i first heard about it um and it was actually through the consortium that they were starting to talk about this uh, this emerging you know this emerging project there and for me, for your requirement through the National Health Service Corps, so that was always kind of my mind. I look out for opportunities that require the, HIP, uh, the HIPSA score that they're uh, requiring is 19 for the for scholars. So we're talking like 19 out of like you know depending on your category about 25 or 26. So this is we're talking about areas of huge need. Yeah. Now, for those of you who don't know that, maybe for- listening, the HIPSA score is is just how we assess. I know how uh, in need of of physicians uh, a community is. So El Centro has a a very high score relatively to uh, the ultimate mark. Exactly. And I appreciate that, Dr. Brown, because that's exactly right. It, so that was that was a, that was the one major piece of it guiding all of that. Now, in New Mexico, just for, for everyone listening, um, there there's kind of this um, bittersweet part of it with the National Health Service Corps. There are a lot of places to work at in New Mexico. And in fact, you could almost throw a stone and find a place um, that you could work at truly. And that is good for you in terms of choice um, going into your service uh, pay period. But you also have to contextualize that based on what Dr. Bowen just said, that that means that there's that much need that we really need around. But I, I remember I met Dr. Lamartine over at our family, at the Christmas St. Vincent Family Medicine Center. It was just kind of a very you know, casual introduction. Um, just, you know, hey, I, I, I'm really interested in what you all are doing up there. 
rotation was set up. And then within the, the course of that rotation, uh, we were, we're talking about actually, you know, turning this into a job. And I, I was just really amazed about this opportunity. Cause like I said, the, the, the number of things that had fall into place to make this happen, the right combination of opportunities for me to practice medicine later on, this opportunity to work for a brand new residency program, like that is like, I I, I don't know, like not many people could say like, I was there for, you know, the founding of this. I may not have been, you know, like, so cool. yeah, it, it's just, it's so awesome. So for all those reasons, I, I mean, that's what really drew me in and what is making me so excited about this opportunity to work as core faculty with them. Yeah, you and I have talked about the multiplier and just kind of how education is fitting perfectly in my mission of just touching as many lives as possible. And I think uh, your ability to imprint and add a new uh, residency is going to just afford you a wealth of of opportunities to impact that. So we're super excited to keep you in academia, to keep you inspiring and teaching um, because you have many gifts along that. So um, can you talk about a few areas that you're really interested in, um, impacting education of residents? What, what are some of your areas, your passion areas within family medicine? Right. So definitely this conversation has already started with, um, with both, both, uh, Dr. Lamartine and Dr. Reyes, who's our, uh, the program director and associate program director respectively. So, you know, a lot of things that I really want to focus on as faculty, um, well, you know, the one is kind of the bread and butter of, you know, kind of where I start, I really want to be a strong, you know, a really strong mentor for the, uh, for the residents we'll have. And now in terms of, um, in, in terms of some of the, you know, the other things that I'm hoping to do within the program educationally, I really do want to focus a lot of what I've learned um, from the, uh, from my public health training. And in terms of really helping our residents to appreciate public health, um, public health services, and to understand how they fit into all of that, because they do fit within public health. But I think the important piece is that, you know, we're not just public health uh um, yeah, we're not just public health, um, practitioners, just, you know, just from being in medicine. The other part of it too, is really instilling a strong sense of, uh, research and quality improvement and really taking leadership over those pieces of the curriculum. I, a major part of my work and I, I really want to continue it because as a resident, it's been, you know, just such an honor and a joy to be able to mentor, you know, some of my colleagues and to come up with just all these projects that are now like crossing kind of these, these power differentials that, you know, traditionally we think about, but really I think, you know, we're, we're showing how this can work practically and work in a way where we're empowering everyone to get involved, to have a voice and I will share just on that note that very recently that Dr. Lamartine and I have really started um, to carve out this project that she had um, come up with the idea for around um, fentanyl use and uh, and preterm deliveries, which yeah. I'm hoping will get off the ground early next year. Um, and, and by that, I mean like early in the calendar. That's year. fantastic. Um, well, I really applaud your your focus on uh, bringing, you know, true scholarly activity and research principles to um to family medicine and primary care in the community setting, because it's certainly not a historical strength of community programs. And many of our community programs struggle to do it in a way that brings meaning and um, delivers, you know, true change and true quality to our residency practices. And I think when you can inspire uh, your peers as you have to, to set aside a little bit of time to make sure that they're, you know, focusing on improving the delivery or, 
studying something that, that has been, you know, nagging at them or uh, challenging their patients. That's truly what, what, what change in, in primary care is all about and allows us to get more at that impactful translational change that we know. We often know the right interventions potentially, but applying them can be really the challenge, right? So I can't wait to have you continue to steward the residents in their uh, approach to scholarly activity. Um, so changing gears a little bit, we, um, uh, for those of you who don't know, um, Dr. Duncan also has a particular interest in native and tribal health. Um, can you share some insights into the unique health challenges faced by native communities and how your work addresses these challenges? Absolutely. And I'll, I'll give you a few, you know, a few examples once I, um, kind of introduce this, uh, you know, this this um, this passion of mine and kind of where this comes from. So just to back up a little bit. So I, I am am part of the uh, the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, and um, this is uh, through my mother's side. And you know, I, I think it's one thing that a lot of us studied in you know U.S. history, or if at least heard about um, in multiple you know in multiple settings that about the um, the challenges faced by a lot of the tribes in Oklahoma. Oklahoma is um, is very. Um, checkered to say the least. In fact, uh, many would say that it's a, it's actually a very dark history. Mm. Um, my, my tribe, most of the, the Choctaw nation, um, especially ours with the Mississippi and band, uh, we were mostly right there along the Eastern, the Eastern banks of the Mississippi river, a thriving tribe doing very well. Agriculture was a very, very strong, um, part of the enterprise. And I do mean enterprise because the Choctaws were very well organized and very savvy and were very good with mm. trade and, we're doing mm -hmm. extremely well. Mm -hmm. The unfortunate part, though, is that it was also a land, a, an area of land that was also very desirable to other people as well. There it is. Yep. And without going into a lot of the histories that, you know, several major treaties later succeeded and the, the Choctaws were displaced as part of the Trail of Tears that most people have heard about mm -hmm. um, from the, the, again, we're not talking very far from where they ended up going, but they were right there yeah. and right there in uh, Western Mississippi again right there along the river mm -hmm. and about a third of them died making the the the, the journey over to Oklahoma mm -hmm. at least those who were um who agreed to the to the sports displacement that it effectively became now the reason I say that is because you can imagine a lot of the tribes the Cherokees Chickasaws I mean there there are many other tribes that were faced with the same hardship and most mm -hmm. of the tribes of Oklahoma are not originally from that area and most of them not even close and right. so it's interesting because that creates so it became a Indian territory right Exactly. And so this became, you know, a really, this is so fundamental to Oklahoma history and mm -hmm. the culture of Oklahoma that's shared by those who are native and non-native. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, you know, I grew up around that and saw the effects of the historical trauma there in Oklahoma and yeah. also the, you know, the grappling with losing culture. Um, mm -hmm. There are many, there are many who don't, are, are definitely not fluent. Like, you know, I, I definitely don't, um, I, I'm not even really proficient in, in Choctaw, but I, I continue to work on it. But there are a lot mm -hmm. of us that, you know, we're, you know, English is our first language, or at least if not English, something other than the, the our, our tribal language. Right. And um, you can imagine it, it's a lot to grapple with. Now, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, to translate that over to what we see in New Mexico, I won't go into a lot of the histories. I think a lot of people listening right now probably know, you know, quite a bit about, you know, what's happened in our state. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, just acknowledging Santa Fe as being a very, um, you know, a very complicated symbol right. of New Mexican culture, because 
it represents both those who conquered the lands and those who originally occupied the lands. And so it's, mm-hmm. there's a lot, there's a lot of complexity to that, but I think because of my upbringing and just, you know, the, the challenges I saw in Oklahoma and how some of it translates, but some of it doesn't um, to our, you know, to our, the native peoples of New Mexico and the surrounding and in the region. Um, I think, you know, a lot of it is about being more duty bound and to to be there because I am fully committed um, to to learning more about the peoples of this area. Because one thing I talked to an applicant recently about during our since we're in the course of doing interviews right now for a residency program is I commented on how challenging it is to come over here because just because you hold a native identity does not mean you inherently know all identities that fall under that because that right. kind of descriptor is almost like calling or referring to somebody as Asian or European. It's a very very broad category. You're talking about a lot of very different people with very different histories. Mm -hmm. So just because you hold that identity or just because you are acknowledged by the government as holding that identity, it doesn't mean you you necessarily know. But for me, that is both a challenge I I welcome, but also one that I think was going to help with my own personal growth and getting more in touch with my roots. Yeah. I I always, you know, mention that uh, this is this is an area where native communities are much more present and vibrant than in other areas that I've lived. And having 23 federally recognized tribes in New Mexico, it's a place where you have to approach everybody with extreme cultural humility. Um, you know, not being native to this area and learning about the interactions. Um, it's it's an incredible place to practice medicine for that reason, because you have to honor the values and the history that a patient and community are bringing to their healthcare journey. And I think um, you summed it up really well, just because you are a member of a tribe doesn't mean that you have, you know exactly how, what a Diné is bringing to the table, right? Um, and so it is a very vibrant place to learn how to support these, these varied communities. You had mentioned the multi-generational trauma, which is a, a really big issue in, in Northern New Mexico. Um, a lot of our patients or communities are struggling with. Can you talk about how um, your experience with positive psychology um, and, and help help us define that term because it's going to be new for a lot of listeners, I'd imagine, um, has flavored how you practice medicine and, and perhaps lead us through a case or experience um, where that's made an impact on how you care for patients? Absolutely. So I I will start with that you know, that definition now. If, for those of you listening, I definitely recommend if you have any interest after this, um, just to you do a little bit of uh, reading up on positive psychology. It's a pretty well published topic where you can get a lot of information online. One uh, person I might refer you to immediately just because it's uh, kind of a gold mine for just learning about is uh, Martin Seligman's work. Um, there's some great TED Talks he's done and some other resources that you can turn to all available online for free. Now, let's get in with that, de- that definition. So positive psychology, just in its most basic form, is about asking the question about what cognitions, what emotions, what behaviors do we observe when people are functioning optimally. And so what we're talking about is, you know, kind of for those that can kind of picture that the Maslow's hierarchy of needs kind of in their minds, we're talking about those who have really kind of gone through, they have their basic needs met, they, they feel safe in their environments, and they're getting to the point where they can actually, you know, achieve self-actualization uh, and really achieve change within their environment. And so that's really what we're talking about. 
a lot of my work is specifically around hope theory, which I, I always like to say is a, is a theory of behavior change. Because really what, you know, hope theory, I think on the surface kind of sounds like, oh, it's like, you know, kind of wishy-washy, like, well, I wish I wish I could do that. I hope I could do this. But it's really <laughs> actually about desired goals and goal setting right. goal pursuit. And yeah. so it's about a goal orientation, which is so ingrained in in evolutionary um developments within humans and other living mm. so it's, mm. it's a shared phenomenon and what hope theory strives to describe really more than anything else um is um what it what it takes for people to approach those goals to set those goals and also mm -hmm. what it looks like when people lose that energy um, because that's an important part that that apathy piece um, that can that mm -hmm. can arise when people are faced with repeated setbacks and repeated oppression from you know from systemic factors and so now to talk about um kind of where this is tied in with my care of patients i want to go back and talk about just two quick things so the first one was is that this all started a while while back with my mentor and as I got into doing more work, um, I ended up coming up with this up with this idea to produce a, a or write up a, a narrative review around how lifestyle medicine or how lifestyle medicine actually can adopt a lot of the the principles of positive psychology and hope to inform the work that we do for um, encouraging behavior change that's so fundamental to chronic disease management. Mm -hmm. um, so that got out there in the American Journal of Lifestyle Medicine. And that really set a, kind of a, a roadmap for me in terms of helping, you know, helping uh, patients out. So going back to my fourth year of medical school, I remember there was this, this gentleman where, um, you know, we were really working through um, why, you know, what was pushing him away so much from injecting or giving himself his um, his uh, basal insulin treatments every every night, um, especially since we were faced with his A1C climbing, climbing, climbing. And I had known him since I was a third year student. And I, um, you know, I, I did some, you know, I borrowed some techniques from from cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, with the downward error technique and really which, which is kind of like what we do with root cause analysis of asking the whys of like getting to the base of a behavior and, and understanding mm -hmm. it fundamentally both for me taking care of him and then both for the, and for the patient himself mm -hmm. and as we went through that i also i really started to work in the framework of his goal prioritization which is one of those themes within positive psychology and he and i actually mapped out together what his purpose in life was what he really wanted to do and visually showed how everything we were talking about could tie together and by the end of it at least by the time i graduated i did have him on his insulin and he was taking it but a lot of it was basically you showing him what those goals were and why they mattered and how we could help him achieve those um mm -hmm. and more most recently i will just share too there is a, a pending um manuscript i submitted over to the international a journal of Applied Positive Psychology as part of an invited um, uh, an invited manuscript uh, from this team that uh, one of the, one of the researchers is out of the Netherlands. I believe the other one is out of the University of Colorado. Um, that's really actually looking at uh, Native culture and how wow. positive psychology can be a tool for elucidating culture, describing culture, but not mm -hmm. something to change culture and how it right. really can fit within the fabrics to help us understand more deeply without prescribing any values. Because again, especially right. in the context of hope theory, we're merely describing you, the, the individuals are the ones that assign value to goals and they are the ones that tell us what the goals are. We are just there to help, you know, frame that. It's a very powerful tool that I have appreciated learning from you. Um, much more about. And I think 
the other thing I'd just like to comment is you hit on how foundational behavior change is to primary care and chronic disease management. Um, but really, you know, most of what we do in, pri- in primary care. Um, and so I think it's also very synergistic. It's worth mentioning it's very synergistic with motivational interviewing techniques that are, are becoming much more, you know, known and taught within medical school. So even if this framework is, is not taught to you under that name, you still are going to recognize a lot of the same principles um, with uh, positive psychology and, and hope theory. So very cool that I, I, I congratulate you on uh, how successful you've been getting those manuscripts posted and um, curriculum implemented within both our residency as well as the UNM psychology, uh, psychiatry residency, which is really great. So hopefully we can continue to democratize that and get that out to the residencies in the state. And lastly, I just want to um, put out a question and for those residents and medical students out there interested in, in, in kind of following a similar path, marrying clinical practice with research and public health initiatives. Do you have any guidance for them? And then perhaps any, any summative for why New Mexico is a, a rich ground for this kind of work? Absolutely. And so to hit on those points really quickly, the things I think are most important to really getting started with all of this. The first the first part is you, you really stand to benefit um, so much from having strong mentorship and finding people to really kind of help at least mentor you in pieces of it. Because truly, like the work I do now is very different from what any of my mentors have done. And truly, that's what is supposed to happen is eventually that, you know, your mentor is there for you to get you started, but you're the one taking your own flight. So it's kind of to help you leave the nest. And then after that, it's it's your journey <laughs> after that. So having those mentors is really, you know, critical for that. Mm-hmm. I will share the one thing that really has gotten me into just having a, you know, by default, you just kind of an inquisitive kind of mind around your clinical practice and really thinking about it in terms of this academic side of things that sometimes we silo off, you know, this, this difference between clinical or the practical piece of it. And then the academic piece, Right. But these are all very much interconnected. Um, but the thing that really mm-hmm. got me to think about this was that the reason that we use a 5% type one error rate in studies, which is for everyone listening. And so we talk about the alpha, you'll hear about like 95% confidence intervals. You'll hear about 0.05 as being the level of significance. But the reason I bring this up is because that was arbitrarily set years and years ago. Um, Robert Fisher was one of the, the most important people behind that because there was actually an article that came out where he just suggested it as a as a threshold, um, just based on a normal distribution and where extreme parts of uh, the data fall within a distribution. And the reason I bring that up is because if you really think about that, though, that means that there's always a significant amount or, well, you know, and we're not talking statistically significant, but, you know, there's a significant amount of uncertainty in everything we think we know. That mm-hmm. there's a reason that living systems are constantly having to be revised, constantly being updated. And the reason I say that is because if something doesn't make sense to you in clinical practice, it may be because it's not, it's violating something that we we thought we knew, but probably because there's something that's left to be studied and there's something that we need to investigate. And you don't have to be your own statistician. You don't have to be an expert in research design or, or really anything to be able to ask these questions. Because the most, the next thing I will tell everyone is that 
And what really gives me the most joy in research is it's the networking, it's the connection, it's coming together with others who bring other skills to the table to be able to answer these questions. And so I think for all those reasons, I, I really want to encourage everyone listening in to really think about that because you can be a force for your specialty without having to, you know, go through, you know, a ton, you know, a ton of schooling specifically dedicated to that, because there are those people out there who can assist you and who are always, you know, willing to lend a hand if you can, you know, develop those relationships. So I think the theme I'm trying to suggest through all of this is, well, maybe two relationships and curiosity. And just remembering that you can be the one to make that change instead of waiting for somebody else to do that. Because sometimes I think we get hunkered down in our bystander effect and we're kind of waiting like, when's the next study come, going to come? <laughs> Maybe you could be the one to write that study. You could be the one to do yeah. that. It's very intimidating for, for a lot of folks to dip those toes in the research sector. But a lot of organizations, a lot of um, uh, a lot, lot of folks out there are doing that great work. and. Um, so interested in getting more research based out of primary care because that's the the biggest touch point for our patients right so that's an area that we can have the biggest impact um i wanted to thank you again for inspiring me in my journey as well to dip my toes back into into research um certainly not my forte as a clinical educator but um uh definitely uh so high value and i think when you watch uh, learners get passionate about that question, right, where they hit that why that just is insufficient for them and, and that spark goes off, maybe I should look at this. Uh, it's just a beautiful experience. So I can't wait for you to continue to inspire others to find that passion and, and help them uh, through the journey uh, that, is, that is research and scholarly activity. Um, and then uh, what, what about New Mexico do you, do you find is a, is a right playing ground for primary care-based research and, and uh, simply leadership in general? Right. You know, we, we have so much need in our community and, and even so much so that, you know, it, we're, we're talking at the level of getting, you know, closing referral loops, uh, getting our mm -hmm. patients with the, for these specialty services, the role of primary care evolving constantly to meet these needs. Um, there mm -hmm. is so much going on right now and so much innovation in New Mexico um, that I think it's because we've, we've had to, you know, come to this point where we can't rely on the, you know, the typical strategies that, you know, we, uh, that other places have been used to for, um, for years. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, if you can get your, you know, yourself into the headspace of I can be that person to make this change, or at least to describe what's going on, mm -hmm. you can really help inform a lot of what's going on, even policy wise. Um, and the right. last thing I will say too, on all of this is that because we are in a state with a lower population density, there's a lot of chances for you to really stand out and to make a difference for not only a lot of people, but in a way where you can get that face time with people, whether it be through the Department of Health, whether it be mm -hmm. um, through our universities, whether it be through our community-based residency programs to really make you know a lot of changes. And so just about the things you have to do because your patients need it, that's that's the area for innovation. That's that area that is right for you know for this kind of work and that's what i love so much about working in new mexico one um one quick thing that makes me think of is just how um intricately we've been able to work with our human services department who, who um again finances health insurance through medicaid for the majority of new mexicans i think not a lot of people realize how impactful that kind of um 
condensation of of payer is right and and we've been at the table and when i say we family physicians you know mostly through the nmafp um you've certainly seen it at your legislative health rotation and um we've been at the table helping them design an alternative payment model uh which we were one of five states to to be awarded that waiver through medicare to be able to get away from fee for service and try to honor more um the hard work that primary care is doing upstream to help prevent illness, prevent hospitalization and ER visits and try to do our best to reduce costs. So super excited to continue to help uh, shape those kind of policies. And when Dr. Duncan mentions you can have a massive impact in the small pond, that has absolutely been my experience. Um, we're looking for leaders. We are looking for change makers. And, and Dr. Duncan certainly is one of those folks that I Cannot wait to watch the career of because you will just have such a great impact, uh, continue to have a great impact on our communities and, and our great states. So thank you so much uh, for this great time. Um, uh, anything else that you want to put out to the airwaves before we finish up? I think the only thing I wanted to share is, you know, definitely for anybody listening, you know, don't be a stranger, you know, this is, this is a nut, you know, kind of a call out to everyone to engage with your community. And even if you listen to this and, you know, like, you know, find my email address and, you know, send that over um, to me, I'm always happy to talk about these things and, you know, just to really make us feel connected because um, there's, there, there's been so much we faced recently that's made, that's disconnected us from one another. And so I think right. there's a lot of great work we can do, but thank you all so much for your, for your attention. And, and hopefully this was, you know, you got some good information and found this to be an enjoyable experience of at least getting this perspective about this work that we have going on in New Mexico. Yeah, and always, if this conversation got the juices flowing, please do reach out to us. It is relational work. So, you know, Dr. Duncan hit on the power of mentorship, and I cannot uh, cannot agree more that um, we are absolutely happy to um, work with you regardless of your stage of training or experience and um, definitely try to uh, find us through the consortium and and link up to the great work that we're doing here. And if you have any requests for uh, future subjects, please do send them along. So Ashton, thank you so much and have a great rest of your day. Thank you all. And in health, I'm uh, Dr. Mac Bowen. Take care. And that brings us to the end of another insightful episode of the Puentes podcast. A special thanks to Dr. Ashton Duncan for joining us and sharing his experiences, and to Dr. Mac Bowen for leading the conversation. Puentes is produced by the New Mexico Primary Care Training Consortium. To learn more about the NMPCTC, visit our website at newmexicoresidencies.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, and X at NMPCTC. While there, we encourage you to send us a message and let us know what topics you'd like covered in future episodes. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to build and strengthen the bridges of primary care in New Mexico. This is Puentes. This is Puentes.